to get a copy of the Old Testament, even in, even the Greek Old Testament, to have a whole copy would have been absolutely unheard of. To have scripture at all, to own it at all, would have been extremely unusual because of how rare it was and how expensive it was. And so most, the most place you could, you could hear it, about the only place you could hear it, was when you would go to the synagogue. And what would happen there is a piece of scripture would be read, and then the rest of the time would be filled with what? The scribal interpretations and the traditions that had built up over them. So Jesus is working hard here to undo the traditions. The ancients, he says, were told this. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of his sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Please be seated. Joyful Thanksgiving versus no. Well, it's in the scripture. It's what we're studying, and so it's where we are, Thanksgiving or no. Well, here's some other thanks. Here's some more Thanksgiving cheer for you. In the United States last year, there were 14,827 murders. That is someone physically killing another person. That is about 42 murders per day. In the world as a whole, in 2012, there were 437,000 murders. That's about 1,197 murders per day. Now, that's physical murder. That is where one person in anger kills another. But if the total, the total of murders that were recorded in the world were to include murders of the heart, that is, anger towards one another, then the totals would skyrocket to nearly six billion per day, since almost everyone gets angry at someone during the day, and probably many more times than that, since we murder multiple people in our hearts during any given 24-hour period. And that's our discussion this morning. The fact that sin, certainly external, external murder is a sin, always begins inside. 
You see, sin is an inside job, and it expresses itself outwardly sometimes, but once it is committed in the heart, it is always sin. And we are an angry people. It's only getting worse. Now, consider the Ferguson riots. You've been hearing about those all week. So-called anger over a judicial decision simply became, for many, an opportunity to allow sinful desire to run rampant. But before you begin to exercise too much self-righteous anger over the actions of the mob in Missouri, perhaps you had best consider the havoc that we have caused in our families and other relationships as a result of our unrighteous anger caused by our own unmet desires. Contrary to popular thinking, we will not stop getting angry when our circumstances get better. We will only solve our anger problems when we have a change of heart, bending our knee to the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus and having our hearts delighted only by the things that he desires. For you see, that is our problem with anger. We desire things that God would not have, or we desire them in a way that God would not have, and thus we sin in our anger. If our passions were only his, and we lived out our passions and desires only in ways that conform to the principles of Scripture and the power of his word, we would never be angry. Of course, that won't happen until we see Christ again. But remember what we have been called to do. Remember our, the difference between justification and sanctification. Sanctification is, or justification is perfect. We have the righteousness of Christ in that way, but we are called and the whole, the whole context of our passage is that we are called to increasingly exercise our sanctification, growing holiness in areas such as anger. And it is no accident, I, I believe, that Jesus mentions anger first in his list of six illustrations of ways that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what he will do. He will give us six illustrations to show what he means when he says, this is what your righteousness must be like. And what we'll see this morning then, is that true righteousness involves recognizing the sinful motivations of our hearts and putting to death the unrighteous anger that arises from our unmet, lustful desires. Again, true righteousness involves recognizing the sinful motivations of our hearts and putting to death the selfish or sinful anger that arises from our unmet, lustful desires. Now, if you glance down to the text, verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told. Remember our context. Jesus has just challenged the people in their understanding of righteousness. He has demanded that they have a righteousness which surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the six illustrations that he will bring, beginning with murder, each give us a picture of how we are to be changed as a result of being in the kingdom. He starts with murder, he'll move to adultery, then divorce, then swearing oaths, then vengeance, and then love. That's all in chapter 5. He will then move in chapter 6 and 7 to many more illustrations of how it is that we live out true righteousness. Beware, we will not emerge from this study unscathed, although I pray that we will emerge from it with greater holiness. That's what we're called to do. That's what God would have for us, and that's why he reveals to us the nature of our hearts so that we might actually begin to pursue the actions which please him, not external only, although those are important, certainly, but moving our sinlessness or our work towards holiness, moving that inward from outward actions to inward heart motivations. First, we will see how the scribes and Pharisees defined murder and its penalty. And remember, that's our context. He has just said in verse 20 that you must have a righteousness which surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so what he will do in these illustrations is first present the way in which they were viewed at the time of Christ by the religious leaders. This is how they viewed the Old Testament commands or the Old Testament principles. And then he will reveal to us what God has to say about what he'd already said. We're not going to see a contrast between the Old and New Testament, Jesus undoing the Old, 
He's just said that no one may annul a single commandment. He came to fulfill them. What he's going to annul or undo is an improper understanding of these commandments as lived out by the scribes and Pharisees, but which unfortunately we too often take hold of ourselves. So first, the scribes and Pharisees defined murder and its penalty. They said, or Jesus says to them, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Jesus uses this very unique phrase. You have heard the ancients were told or something like this. You were told. He uses it five times, now five other times, a total of six, just in these verses. This is the only place he uses this unique phrase. And it's very unusual because normally when Jesus refers to the Old Testament, and certainly he is doing that here, He's not referring to simply the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees because each of the things he refers to, certainly the first two, are direct Old Testament commandments, part of the Ten Commandments. So he's referring to the Old Testament, but he uses this phrase, I believe, because he is really, he's saying this is how the scribes and Pharisees have interpreted what the Old Testament says. Right? This is what it said, but when he says you've heard that the ancients were told, it is as though he's saying this is what the Bible said, And it has been, really, it has been twisted, it has been misunderstood, or really lived in an improper way by those who teach you now. So I'm going to tell you what it really means. You've heard that it was said, and it was said in God's Word, but they are not obeying it properly, and I am going to demonstrate to you, teach you, how to truly understand the commands that were given in the Old Testament. Always, the Pharisees and scribes took commands and made them more doable or sought to to put them in a light that they could actually keep them. And, John MacArthur observes, the scribes and Pharisees of this age had a completely inverted order of obedience. Their carnality and self-righteousness led them to exalt the precepts respecting ceremonial observances, the things that really they had invented around the law, as much more important than the duties given in the Ten Commandments. And when they did obey the Ten Commandments, they did so in an external fashion so that they could claim complete obedience. Now, here's the problem, and it's very similar to the problem today, very similar to the problem all throughout church history. That is, around the true commands of Christ is built up a whole series of teachings. And those teachings become, those traditions become more important than the teaching itself. Certainly happened at the time of the Reformation, when Martin Luther then brings the truth of the Word of God to bear, and it certainly was happening during the time of Christ. The scribes and Pharisees had taken the Old Testament laws and really all the tradition of Jewish interpretation from the the last book written in the Old Testament, Malachi, all the way down the 400 years of silence. They built up a whole series of traditions, additional laws, ways to obey that actually trumped Scripture themselves. So what happened was that what the church said about Scripture was the truth rather than what the truth actually said. And of course, this remains a problem for us when people don't read their Bibles. When people don't understand what the Word of God has to say, they believe the things that their leaders tell them. They believe the things that the church tells them, which may not necessarily even be the truth. And the people in Jesus' time were suffering from a tremendous amount of biblical illiteracy. Now, they have a lot better excuse than we do. To get a copy of the Old Testament, even even the Greek Old Testament, to have a whole copy would have been absolutely unheard of. To have Scripture at all, to own it at all, would have been extremely unusual because of how rare it was and how expensive it was. And so most, the most place you could, you could hear it, about the only place you could hear it, was when you would go to the synagogues. And what would happen there is a piece of Scripture would be read, and then the rest of the time would be filled with what? The scribal interpretations and the traditions that had built up over that. So Jesus is working hard here to undo the traditions. The ancients, he says, were told this, right? came from Scripture, but then was, was really essentially retranslated or, or 
or tradition was built up around it to believe something different. Now we must be careful that we too do not fall into this trap. We must know what the word of God says. So that's what Jesus is going to do. Now, first, let's just deal with the command that he gives him. The ancients were told what? Well, they were told, you shall not commit murder. All right? So murder equals an unlawful taking of human life. And this is what the Old Testament says. Right? This is found in a variety of places, beginning in Genesis 9, as Noah and his family get off the ark. Really, human law, uh, the idea of human law and oversight is instituted there, and one of the primary institutions of human law is capital punishment, that is, death for unlawful killing. Genesis 9, 5 says, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require, from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So unlawful killing of other men has always been prohibited, or certainly since the time of Noah, really since the time of Cain and Abel, since the time man fell. Exodus 20, 13 just says it this way, You shall not murder. Now, it is important that we understand that this, this translation, the idea of murder, is correct, not simply any kind of killing, not any taking of human life, which is the perversion that is given today. The idea that any taking of human life is somehow unacceptable or inappropriate. The Bible does not teach that. Certainly, there are, are kinds of taking of life that are commended in Scripture. That would be, or certainly are allowed, killing in self-defense, wars that were ordered by God himself in the Old Testament particularly, Capital punishment is required. And then, very interestingly, you have places like Exodus 21 and Numbers 35 that say if a man's life is taken accidentally, that that doesn't count as manslaughter or murder. So life can be taken, it just may only be taken according to the principles of Scripture. Anything other than that is murder. It is an unlawful killing. And God hates it. Let's, let's be clear. All right? The ancients were told something that was proper. God hates the unlawful taking of life. Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes and a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. It goes on to say, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. And in Revelation twenty-two fifteen, we find that those whose lives are characterized by murder, and certainly that would be an external form, uh, as well as internal as we will see, they are not allowed into the kingdom. Revelation twenty-two fifteen, outside of the dogs, and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So the ancients were told that you shall not commit murder. That's an Old Testament command, and it's correct. And then they were told the penalty for that command. Number two, murder equals guilt in a court of law. And this also was true. What seems to be indicated here by the phrase, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, means that if you commit murder, you should be taken to the court and you will be found guilty there. And it would seem that the idea here is a human court. You would go before the elders in, in Jerusalem, or you would go before, in Old Testament Israel, you would go to the elders, they would try the case to witnesses and other things, and then they would determine if true murder happened, and they would render a guilty verdict, right, if murder had actually been committed. So as far as this goes, everything is fine. Like, what's wrong with this? But here's the problem. The way that the Pharisees had interpreted this, the way that they had externalized it was simply this. Only external killing is murder. Nothing else. If you, if you actually physically kill someone, that's the only kind of murder that, that God sees as a sin, and therefore it is possible to keep this command, to be perfect in this command all your life. Think about it. There are many who have gone all the way through their lives and never physically killed another person. In fact, I would say that most of you, I pray all of you, sitting here this morning have not actually killed someone else, right? 
And so the idea is the Pharisees externalized this so they could say, I kept this one. And they could stand before God and say, I never murdered. Now, not only did they do that to this commandment, but what did they do? They did that to all of them. And so they put them in a, in a way, they thought about them in a way, they, re, they reinterpreted them in such a way that all of these commands could actually be kept, and so they could stand before God in their own self-righteousness and said, I never did those external acts. I never did them. And this is what Jesus is going against. This is what he is focusing on, that they could somehow move those things into such a realm that they could keep these laws perfectly. Because our righteousness must exceed that. That is, we must learn how to keep what is intended by the law, even though we will not keep it perfectly. Now, the scribes and Pharisees should have known this. The religious leaders should have known this. It is not as though the Old Testament speaks to external acts only, or that somehow the only teaching in the Old Testament is you just have to do the external act and the heart doesn't matter. Consider verses like 1 Kings 8.39. This is Solomon praying to the Lord as the temple is inaugurated. He says, then hear and have in your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Or 1 Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. All of this summed up well in Jeremiah 17.10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. See, God knows the heart. He's always known it. And he's always commanded that it be our hearts that are pure, that we seek to be righteous in our hearts, which then extends out into our practical living. But it seems that the teaching at the time was just simply, we'll make this external. And if you come before a human court, which seems to be the only court of appeals that is mentioned here, that is by the scribes and Pharisees, what's ma what matters is if you are accused on a human level. So if you actually commit murder and kill someone, of course the law will come and get you and accuse you. That's what matters. If you don't do that, then you're innocent. And Jesus is going to change that radically. Now, one of the intense ironies here is that the scribes and Pharisees were saying, hey, we haven't killed anyone. We certainly have this area of righteousness taken care of. But the irony is that they would indeed commit murder before their, our journey through Matthew is complete. They, they would have explained that away as well. But in their anger, they will, in fact, pursue a course of murder against Christ himself. The one to whom they proclaimed they were innocent is the one they will seek to actually murder in their anger against him. So that's the scribes and Pharisees and probably the religious leaders and mostly the people's definition of what it meant to commit murder. But Jesus then puts these four words. But I say to you, that's five words. He says, but I say to you, he's here not contradicting the Old Testament. He's not saying, well, the Old Testament said this, but I, Jesus, have come to give you something new to say. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He is saying, I am going to tell you what this law really means. I am going to give you the, the, the true nature of the sin behind this external act of murder, which is really what is being spoken about in God's law, because God's law deals with the heart. Jesus, of course, has every right to do this. Remember who Jesus was. He was the fulfillment of the law. Not only living it himself perfectly, but also explaining it perfectly, and then dying in such a way that we might begin to live it actually. Notice I didn't say perfectly. But nonetheless, Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the one who 
sets these things right, who tells us what the law really means, and we are to listen to him. Matthew 17, 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. The voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And that's our calling as believers. The words of Christ are found in both Old and New Testament. We must properly understand them so that we must, may properly listen to him and stop listening to our culture, stop listening to false teachers, stop listening to those who misunderstand or add to or put traditions around the truths of the word of God. We're to listen to Jesus. And that doesn't mean just inventing whatever we want Scripture to mean or hearing some subjective voice of Jesus. It means a proper interpretation of Scripture itself. And that is what Jesus is bringing us. John MacArthur says, He's essentially saying, Jesus is saying this, let me tell you what the scriptures themselves say, what God's truth is on the matter. He's saying to the Pharisees, you cannot justify yourselves because you have not committed the physical act of murder. Murder goes much deeper than that. It originates in the heart, not the hands. It starts with evil thoughts, regardless of whether or not those thoughts have been brought to confirmation or consummation in action. And again, it is always true that our religion, that our, our exercise of spiritual principles always moves towards formalism. We want to look right and be right and, and feel that we are right in what we do, and so we constantly justify our actions, pushing them outside of us, external to us, so that we aren't responsible. And no place more than in anger. Anger is everybody else's fault, isn't it? It's what your spouse did. It's what your children did. It's what the justice system did. It's everyone else's fault. And that's what we mean by externalism. Because if it's everyone else's fault, then even if you get angry, then you haven't sinned. It's their fault. They made you do it. You made me angry. All of those things that we know better than to say, but we say them nonetheless. We make the justifications nonetheless. Now, I mentioned the Reformation already. And it is, it is called what? The Reformation. There is a, it's articular. Why? Because it's, it's the big. We see it. That was the time when things were reformed, when the church had been cast into darkness for a thousand years. Well, I tell you, the darkness was no greater, or was no less great at the time of Jesus. So maybe we ought to call that the Reformation, and maybe Martin Luther and John Calvin should be the second Reformation. Because after 400 years of silence, in AD 29, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and he launches this original Reformation that had a far greater impact even than Martin Luther launching the Reformation by nailing the 95 Theses in 1517. Jesus launches this truth about the nature of sin and the nature of our hearts so that we might truly have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. So what does Jesus say? What is Jesus' definition then of murder and its penalty? First, Jesus says, anger equals the heart of murder. Or anger equals a heart of murder. Everyone, he says, who is angry with his brother. The word here all right, simply means to be strongly averse to someone, to have strong displeasure with someone. And so to get kind of a broader definition of anger, and for our purposes this morning, we're speaking of unrighteous anger. If you look at this word, in, in, first in the Greek, in the New Testament, and then take the, the, the roots of the word and take it into the Old Testament, the Hebrew words, the word is mentioned, anger is used over 350 times. The vast majority of those uses of the word of anger, the word anger, belong to God. Almost all of them. And all of his anger, of course, being righteous. The few times when it is mentioned in light of men or man's anger, 95% of those are unrighteous 
anger. Maybe 100%. Um, we'll let Ephesians 4, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in, in another time. But when men express anger, it is always or almost always unrighteously. So that's what we're speaking of here. There are things to be angry about, as it were. There are things that should cause us to be grieved and should cause us to, to have the righteous anger of God. But our expression of anger, unfortunately, is almost always sinful. And in the, the context here, this is a true sinful anger, which would be defined this way. Sinful displeasure caused by our desires not being met in the way that we demand or expect. Right Again, a sinful displeasure caused by our desires not being met in the way that we demand or expect. Notice that it's not sinful desires necessarily that cause anger. You could have righteous desires. And yet, if they're not met the way that you expect, and you respond to that with a sinful displeasure, right? that is your exercise of anger, and that is when you step into sin. So sometimes people desire righteousness and justice. Those things don't happen, and they are angry about it. And yet, very often, most often, their anger is sinful. It is generated selfishly. It is a personal displeasure, and it goes beyond the bounds or is expressed in ways that are not true according to Scripture. So Jesus... Here, first, is laying out a principle that all sin originates in the heart. Now, you're familiar with that. We've been talking about that. And really, as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the change of heart that's necessary, poor in spirit, gentle, merciful, all of those things. Right? And yet, this is a, a something that bursts upon the people of the day and is unfortunately new to them. It seems that this stuns them, the idea that it's not the externals that make one sinful, it is the internal nature of the heart. Matthew 15, Jesus says this. And really, he's constantly addressing these traditions of the scribes and Pharisees to, to make everything external and to clean externally so that they feel righteous. He's talking about their, their constant washing of, of pots and, and, and cleaning things before they eat so they wouldn't be defiled. He says, are you still lacking in understanding, Matthew 15, 16? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. He gives them a basic biology lesson. You don't get spiritually defiled by the stuff that physically enters into your body. Now, he doesn't say you couldn't get physically defiled, defiled with that. <laughs> you know, all kinds of problems eating the wrong food. But it's not a spiritual problem. It's a physical one. You, he says, have a greater spiritual problem. And cleaning things externally, moving things external, and saying, I didn't do that, or cleaning pots and pans to try to be clean spiritually will never work. He says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. These defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. It is our hearts that are sinful, and our hearts generate evil. Every act of evil you have ever committed was generated by your own heart. And the only person responsible is you. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, 
but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.